Right, Saints, let's stand up. Um, this is going to be one of those mornings that you really going to have to put your thinking cap on with me. So let's let's just ask for help from the Lord, and uh, it's good to see everybody this morning. So if you would, as we go to prayer, just open up your heart right now to the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit. Father, we thank you for your goodness and your grace. Thank you for the gift of Jesus Christ. We acknowledge all of the spiritual realities of the Holy Spirit, the holy angels, the spirit of wisdom and revelation. Father, I ask this morning for that spirit to be poured out in this place upon every person that hears this message, that the eyes of our heart will be opened by revelation, that it will be impacting and transforming. And I give you thanks and praise. Help me, anoint me, help me to deliver it in a way that's practical and understandable in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. Uh, so again, if, if you missed it the first time I said it, this is going to be one of those services that you really got to put your thinking cap on with me. I'm going to try and go slow. Slowly, I'm going to use potentially a lot of scripture, uh, but I don't want to use so much that we get bogged down. Because once you see the revelation of this... Um, the whole Bible changes, and then you can see it everywhere, right? So we can get bogged down in that. But I think this issue of the Melchizedek, the order of Melchizedek that Hebrews talks about is really, really crucial and foundational to the gospel, and we've missed so much of it. And I, I, I think there's there's reasons for that. But let's let me just read to you. You don't need to turn there. I just want to tie this into what we're doing with Melchizedek, and I'll review some of the things about him. In fact, let's just do that now, shall we? So Melchizedek is, shows up in Genesis 14, and in, then he's mentioned in Psalm 110, and then never mentioned again until the book of Hebrews. But Hebrews spends a majority of, the writer Hebrews spends a majority of time talking about this person, Melchizedek, that we find in the Old Testament, right? The word Melchizedek, it, his function was, we're told he was the priest of the Most High God. His name means the king of righteousness, and he was the king of Salem, and Salem means peace. So he's the king of righteousness and the king of peace. Here's the important point. He had no human genealogy. He had no connection to Adam or Adam's race. It's important for you to see that. Just say it with me. He had no human genealogy. Now that's in your Bible. It's in Hebrews. All right, so he's not a descendant of Adam. Um, and then Jesus comes after the order of Melchizedek. Jesus is not Melchizedek. The, the writer of Hebrews goes out of his way to say that Jesus is not Melchizedek, but he comes in the same order of priesthood. And so what he does is he contrasts for the ancient people the Levitical priesthood whereby the law came with... The Melchizedek priesthood that brings in something else. Everybody tracking with me and following so far? So we want to look at this morning, what is that something else? That's the question we want to answer. What is that something else that the Melchizedek priesthood brings in? And you've got to remember that Melchizedek, the, the order of Melchizedek is hidden. It's, it's the high priest and the high priest goes where? Behind the veil. So it takes an unveiling of scripture to see it. Are you breathing? Okay, let me just read this. Verse 11, Hebrews chapter 7, verse 11. Therefore, if perfection were through the Levitical priesthood or the Old Testament temple priesthood, for what further, <clears throat> for under it the people received the law. 
For under the priesthood, the people received the law. What further need was there that another priest should rise according to the order of Melchizedek and not be called according to the order of Aaron? That's the question we're asking. What's the need? For the priesthood being changed, of necessity there is also a change of the law. That's why we're not under the law anymore, because the priesthood has changed. All right. For he of whom these things are spoken belongs to another tribe from which no man has officiated at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord arose from the tribe of Judah, of which tribe Moses spoke nothing concerning the priesthood. It's important because he's belaboring the point that there's no genealogical connection. That's the issue. There's no transmission of genes. So if Jesus had been born of Levi, he couldn't have come after the order of Melchizedek. And it is yet far more evident if in the likeness of Melchizedek there arises another priest. So Jesus is in the likeness of Melchizedek. That's why I said he's not Melchizedek. Who has become, who who has come, now watch, this is the important part. Not according to the law of fleshly commandment, but according to the power of an endless life. So it's the difference between being under the law of fleshly commandment or the power of an endless life. Are you tracking with me? All right, now, come with me John's Gospel, and I'm going to blow up a tradition. But it'll be okay. You'll, you'll be all right, I promise. How many of you know this verse? One of the first verses I had to memorize when I became a believer uh, in my discipleship courses and stuff that I was doing many, 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 many moons ago. John 10.10, most of you can quote it. The thief comes... To steal, kill, and destroy, but I have come that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. Here's my question, saints. Those of you that have heard me teach this before, do not answer. (laughs) Who is the thief? Traditionally, let's just say, who are we told the thief is in John chapter 10, verse 10? Who's the thief that comes to steal, kill, and destroy that we're told? It's the devil. It's Satan, right? Now, I was talking to somebody earlier before service and they asked me for a little teaser. So I said, we're going to talk about who the thief is in John 10.10 because it's not the devil. And the person responded and said, oh, I've stood on that scripture so many times, you know, in, in spiritual warfare and stuff like that. And so, yes, it's a true principle that the powers of darkness, that, that's all they can do. They can't give life. So all they can do is steal, kill, and destroy, right? So it's a true principle But it is not an accurate translation or understanding or interpretation. It's an accurate translation. It's not an accurate understanding or interpretation of this passage because it's plucked completely out of context. See, we take verses out of context and then make them say what we want them to say and then wonder why we get so messed up and stuff doesn't work. Because Jesus tells us very plainly who the thief is. So let's look at this. John chapter 10, verse 1. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs up some other way, the same as a thief and a robber. So the thief is someone who does not come by the door into the sheepfold. Everybody say sheepfold. Got it? But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the doorkeeper opens and the sheep hear his voice and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. And when he brings out his own sheep... 
He goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. Yet they will by no means follow a stranger, but will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of the strangers. Jesus used this illustration, but they did not understand the things which he had spoke to them. Then Jesus said, most assuredly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. So stop right there in verse 7. Who's the door of the sheep? Jesus says, I am, right? I am the door of the sheep. Go back to verse 1. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs up some other way, is a thief and a robber. So whoever does not come through, right, is a thief and a, right? Now watch this. All who ever came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief does not come except to steal, kill, and destroy. But I have come that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. Listen to this statement. All who ever came before me are thieves and robbers. How many? All. Now this is a startling statement because what Jesus is actually saying here, the sheepfold is Israel. He says in there, if you keep reading, he says, I have sheep of other pastures also. So if you're a Gentile, you're a sheep of the other pastures. Jesus is speaking to the Pharisees specifically about Israel. And watch what he says. All who came before me, because he's the door of the sheep, so anybody that came before him couldn't enter through the door. All who came before me are thieves and robbers. And the thief comes to do what? Steal, kill, and destroy. He's actually talking about all the teachers and prophets in Israel. And there was silence in Polo West for the space of 30 minutes. <laughs> Seriously. He's talking about Moses. He's talking about David. He's talking about Elijah. He's talking about the Pharisees themselves. He's talking about the rabbinical traditions. Because the issue is giving life. And perfection could not come under the law. Alright, so the key to understanding John's Gospel, let's back up. John chapter 1, and then we'll go to Galatians, and then we'll get into some little bit deeper stuff here. Galatians chapter 1. In the beginning was... Uh, uh, Galatians, I'm sorry. John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, Word was with God, blah, 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 right? Then we get down to verse 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Alright. Now, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. If you have a good Bible, the word among there will have a... uh, If you you have a a Bible that's being true to the original languages, more so than others, you'll have a footnote there by the word among, and it'll be in your uh, margin. 
and it will say, or within. And I did a whole teaching on this. This word, it's one of the only places in all of Scripture that this Greek word is translated among. Everywhere else it's translated within, to be within something. That changes the entire reading. The Word became flesh and dwelt within us. And we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Changes the whole reading, doesn't it? See, religion wants to externalize what's meant to be internalized. But here's another interesting thing. If you look in verse 18, no one has seen God at any time. This is why they were thieves and robbers. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, who is in the bosom of the Father, He has declared Him. Are you tracking with me so far? Notice in verse, four, in verse 18 there, He calls Him the only begotten Son. But in verse 14, the word Son is left out. Why is it left out in verse 14? Because it's not talking about the man Jesus. And here's why. Again, we're kind of victims of our translations here. The word only begotten in the Greek is the Greek word monogenes. Just say that with me so you're talking with me. Monogenes. All right? Mono means singular. That's why it gets translated only. And genes is actually the word for genetic. It's a genetic principle. It's a gene. So it's a single gene. Or you could call it a seed. So when Christ, when, when the Word became flesh in the person of Jesus, he was, the, he was carrying the single gene, the monogenes, the single seed, if you will. Right? And He's the only begotten Son... But actually what God is giving to you when He loves the world so much that He gave His single-gened Son, what He's doing is somehow, and it's a mystery, we don't understand how, but somehow when the single gene of divine potential, let's put it that way, because a seed has potential, a gene has potential, doesn't necessarily develop. The single gene of divine potential was inserted, if you will, into the man Jesus. And when that happened, it was uh, somehow, it became flesh in all of humanity. That's why the Bible can say, just as in Adam all die, so in Christ all shall be made alive. So if you understand that, then the Word became flesh and dwelt within us, and we beheld His glory, the glory of the single gene. Not the glory of Jesus. The glory of a seed. It's the seed of divine potential that is inside every human being, but it cannot actualize or come to life until it receives the water from on high. That Melchizedek represents, that is represented in your constellations, as the man with the water pitcher in his hand. On day two, God separates... This, if you've been coming on Wednesday nights, this will make sense to you. 
God separates the waters above from the waters below. Now, water to the Hebrew person was not just, it was life, right? It was also reflection, so it was also consciousness. So you have the mind above and the mind below. You have the spiritual mind, you have the carnal mind. He separates them on day two, and it's the only time, the only day that God looks at what he did and doesn't say it's good. There's no good in day two. Because it's talking about a complete separation. A complete division between heaven and earth, right? So Jesus, and I said this Wednesday night, you'll, you'll only catch this Wednesday night, please don't get lost in this. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil is actually in day two. And it's, it's showing you that from a, from a Hebraic, esoteric, or mystical perspective because there were two trees, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and the tree of life, and there's the second day. <laughs> Alright? But here's the point. Two speaks of division. Three speaks of the reconciliation of that which was divided. Right? So Jesus is crucified between two thieves. Because he's the tree of life. Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree that reconnects the waters below and the waters above. So he stands as the Melchizedek who pours out the water so that when you come under his order, it activates your own human divine potential. So that you can behold the glory of the only begotten in you. Now with that in mind, come with me to Galatians 3. Now this is where we, you got to think with me a little bit. Galatians chapter 3, verse 15. Brethren, I speak in the manner of men. Though it is only a man's covenant, yet it is not, uh, no I'm sorry, let's do verse 16 because verse 15 is confusing. Let's just start with verse 16. Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He does not say, and to seeds as of many, but as of one, and to your seed, who is Christ. So that Abraham's seed is Christ, right? And this I say, that the law, which was 430 years later, cannot annul the covenant that was confirmed before by God in Christ, that it should make the promise of no effect. For if the inheritance is of the law... It is no longer of promise, but God gave it to Abraham by promise. What purpose then does the law serve? It was added because of transgressions till the seed should come to whom the promise was made. And it, or the law, watch this. This is why everybody who came before was thieves and robbers. It was appointed through angels. Everybody say angels. By the hand of a mediator. So God did not give it directly. Now, a mediator does not mediate for one, but God is one. Is the law against the promises of God? Certainly not. For if there had been a law given, which could have given life, truly righteousness would have been by the law. See, the problem with the law was it couldn't give life. So all it could do was steal, kill, and destroy. 
But Jesus comes bearing the seed, the life-giving seed. So here's the point. The life-giving seed was not in humanity prior to Christ. So nobody who came into the sheepfold could activate it for you. And the law can't activate it for you. That's why Melchizedek comes not by the ordinance of a carnal law, but by the what? Power of an endless life. You see it? Now let me look at my notes so that I don't get myself lost. Alright, so let's, let's think about the seed for a minute. There are three seeds. Now watch this. There are three seeds, three people who have a seed who, and that seed represents the Messiah. The first one is in Genesis 3.15. It's the seed of the woman. So God, so God speaking to the serpent after the fall says, I'll put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. You shall, he, he will crush your head. You shall bruise his heel, right? So there is the seed of the woman. Somebody say with me, the seed of the woman. The woman doesn't carry the seed. The man does. So it takes Adam out of the equation. So it is a seed that is not Adamic. You know who the next person is mentioned as having a seed? We just read it. To Abraham and his seed where the promise is made, right? So Abraham, there's no talk of Abraham about kids in the story until after he meets with Melchizedek. And the Bible even says he meets with Melchizedek at the end of Genesis 14. And then the Bible even says after these things. Then God starts talking to him and he starts talking to God about the seed like the stars of the sky. Melchizedek did not have genealogy and he blessed Abram. Why did Abram have to receive a blessing from Melchizedek? Because he had to be the carrier of the divine seed. It's about the preparation of the divine seed. So when, whenever Melchizedek shows up, it removes the Adamic properties and inserts that which is pure. See it? So you got the seed of woman, no Adam. You have the seed of Abraham coming only after Abraham receives the blessing of Melchizedek. Now guess who the third person is whose seed is talked about being connected to Messiah? David. You shall not fail to have a seed that sits on your throne. Where's, who's the only, uh, where's the only other time Melchizedek's talked about in the Old Testament? Only two places. Once meeting Abram before the seed. And the second is in reference to David in Psalm 110. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And then later on he goes, I have sworn forever, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. We apply it to Christ, but originally it was to David. That's why David could eat the showbread and not die. It's why when they're bringing the ark up from Jerusalem, uh, the ark up from um, 
Shiloh into Jerusalem, transitioning from the tabernacle of Moses to the tabernacle of David. It's why David was wearing white linen and dancing before the Lord, because the only one that wore white linen was the high priest. So guess what? You got the seed of woman, only three places, watch this. Only three places, the seed of woman, not the seed of Adam, the seed of Abram after he met Melchizedek, and then the only other place Melchizedek is mentioned, the seed of David, who's a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Because it's, it's, it's the cleansing of the seed. So that is the mono, it's, it's the perfecting in Israel of the monogenes. The single seed. The seed of divine potential. Are you breathing? Is this boring you? I hope, I hope not. It's fascinating. Now, what happens... So, so come with me to Genesis now. Genesis 14. Uh, just real quick. I won't keep you long today. I don't feel like preaching today. Just teaching. Gen- Genesis 14... Abraham meets Melchizedek. Last part of Genesis 14. Genesis 15, God talks to him about his heir and his seed. So he has an encounter with God and God talks to him. Now come with me to Genesis 16. I'm going to read this story real quick. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. And he had an Egyptian, that's important, an Egyptian maidservant, whose name was Hagar. So Sarai said to Abram, See now the Lord has restrained me from bearing children. Please go into my maid. Perhaps I shall obtain children by her. And Abram heeded the voice of Sarai. Now remember, he's got the blessing of Melchizedek on his seed. Then Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, her maid, the Egyptian... It's emphasizing that. And gave her to her husband Abram to be his wife after Abram had dwelt ten years in the land of Canaan. So he went into Hagar, he went into Egypt. (laughs) And she conceived, and when she saw that she had conceived, her mistress became despised in her eyes. Then Sarai said to Abram, My wrong be upon you. I gave my maid into your embrace, and when she saw that she had conceived, I became despised in her eyes. The Lord judge between you and me. So Abram said to Sarai, Indeed your maid is in your hand. Do to her as you please. And when Sarai dealt harshly with her, she fled from her presence. Now the angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, by the spring of the way of Tushur. And he said, Hagar, Sarah's maid, where have you come from and where are you going? And she said, I am fleeing from the presence of my mistress, Sarah. And the word Hagar actually means to flee. The angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit yourself under her hand. And when the angel of the Lord had said to her, I will multiply your descendants exceedingly so that they shall be not, so that they shall be counted as a multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, behold, you are with child. And you shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael. Shmael. (laughs) Ishmael. Because the Lord has heard your affliction. He shall be a wild man. His hand will be against every man. And every man's hand will be against him. And he dwelt in the presence of all his brethren. Then she called the name of the place. You are the God who sees. For she said, I have also seen him who sees me. And then it goes on through that. All right. 
You have to understand. Oh, this is going to get me in trouble. This is a figurative story. You have to understand that what Israel is reading when they're reading the Torah, it over and over and over again is showing them their own exodus from Egypt and who they are as a people. So Abram carries a seed. Remember God told him you'll have a seed like the stars of the sky and like the sand of the seashore. You'll have a seed that's heavenly and a seed that's earthly. He receives the blessing of Melchizedek. Now it's on his seed, not just on him, but also on his seed. So he goes into the Egyptian. It's there. See, they dwelt in Canaan. Then they went down into Egypt where they multiplied and grew. They became a multitude in Egypt, but they had to leave Egypt and go where? Into the wilderness where they received what? The law, and the law came through what? The mediation of an angel. So Abraham's seed goes into Egypt... Then has to, and, and Ishmael is important because, does anybody know what the most important scripture in Jewish thinking is for centuries? The most important verse, the foundational verse. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. Do you know what that's called? It's called the Shema. The word El is the name for God. Shema is actually in the word Ishmael. So he goes into the Egyptian, then leaves into the wilderness. She meets God. <laughs> After she flees, it's an angel. It's a picture of Israel going into Egypt, leaving Egypt, and being given the law or the Shema, which is why God tells him to name him Ishmael. Because he represents the earthly seed that is under the law and in bondage. Well, how do you know that, Aaron? Well, because the Bible says so. In Galatians 4, come with me. Gosh, I'm going to get through this quick. You guys are doing great. Does this make sense to you? Galatians 4. Listen to this. Verse 21. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not hear the law? Shema. For it is written, Abraham had two sons, the one by the bondwoman and the other by the free woman. But he who is of the bondwoman was born according to the flesh and he of the free woman through the promise, which things are symbolic or figurative. For these are two covenants, the one from Mount Sinai, which gives birth to bondage, which is Hagar. Mount Sinai is where they got the law. So Hagar is that. For this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the Jerusalem which now is and is in bondage with her children because all who came before me were thieves and 
robbers. But the Jerusalem above is, say it with me, free, which is the mother of us all. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren, you who have not born. Break forth and shout for you who are not in labor. For the desolate has many more children than she who has a husband. See, Sarah was barren. Now we, brethren, are as Isaac was, are the children of the promise. See, the children who come by the seed, who come by the monogenes. But as he who was born according to the flesh, then persecuted him who was born according to the spirit, even now it is. Nevertheless, what does the scripture say? Cast out the bondwoman and her son, for the son shall not be heir uh, of the bondwoman, shall not be heir with the son of the free woman. So then, children, we are not children of the bondwoman, but of the free. What did Jesus say to Nicodemus? Unless you are born from uh, above... You cannot see the kingdom. See, this whole thing, the whole thing from Genesis to Revelation is about birthing a divine seed inside humanity that manifests as the sons and daughters of God, as the children of God, as the children of liberty, as those who are born from above. Or the key to Melchizedek is he connects heaven and earth and he brings the waters from above, that 40th generational principle. Remember? from the past teachings, so that it can be inserted into humanity so that the glory of the only begotten, the monogenes, can be revealed in many sons and daughters. So what, right? All right. Who was the first thief in the Bible? It's not a trick question. The first person who actually steals something. It's not figurative or symbolic. I had no idea either. But I thought there's got to be some connection here. So the first thief in the Bible... Remember Jesus when he's talking about the thief, what's he talking about? He's talking about the sheep, right? The first thief in the Bible is actually, I was surprised, is Rachel. It's in Genesis 31, but I'm just going to tell you the story for the sake of time, okay? Okay. It's in Genesis 31. You can look it up. It's the first thief in the Bible. Now, first mention is always important because it carries something with it. You know what Rachel's name means? Lamb. Specifically female lamb or that which gives birth to sheep. Isn't it interesting that Jesus, when he's talking about a thief, he talks about sheep. Guess what she steals? She steals, yeah, she steals the household gods from her father. They're called teraphim. And here's what the Jewish Encyclopedia says about teraphim. It says they are, um, let me find it. Household gods that according to the Jewish Encyclopedia were images of human shape and considerable size. So they're not just gods, but they're gods in human image. Because man was made to carry what? The divine image. So she steals the teraphim from her father Laban while he's out tending sheep. (laughs) 
And the reason Joseph is leaving with his 12 sons, the reason Israel is leaving Laban is because he has no inheritance in Laban's house. Because the child of the bondwoman can't be the heir with the child of the free woman. Is this making sense to you? So she hides these gods. When, 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 when Laban realizes the gods are gone, he's outraged. And he goes after Joseph and he accuses Joseph of stealing the gods. Joseph didn't know that his wife Rachel had stolen them. And he says, I don't know anything about it. Right? And he doesn't find the gods. Now here's the question. They're going out into the wilderness. They're returning to Canaan. So this is the return journey. Right? He's returning. Because he doesn't have an inheritance out there in the wilderness. Right? The reason he doesn't find them is because Rachel hides them in the saddle, basically on the on the camel. So she's a woman sitting on a beast. Might ring a bell. And she doesn't get up when her dad comes in to check. And the reason she says, this is in the Bible, the reason she says she doesn't get up is because she's on her period. Interesting that the woman who writes the beast in the book of Revelation is writing a scarlet beast. So she's carrying the image of the gods, the idols, and showing that she carries the dead seed. And Laban never does find the gods. So there's lots of patterns there. It's about trying to steal the image of God. See, religion, all religion is, is trying to steal the image of God when you don't have the seed that can give birth. And so the idolatry becomes hidden. Now watch this. This is going to be a strong statement. The idolatry becomes hidden. So what was Israel's problem? Over and over and over again throughout kings and whatever, it was that they worshipped idols. And so here's the picture. Here's the picture. It's, it's, the, it's the seed that's in bondage, right? It's the thief, the first thief that comes to steal, kill, and destroy. So it's easy for Jesus to say, all who ever came before me were thieves and robbers because they, didn't, they weren't carrying the right seed that had the ability to give life. They were only carrying the seed of death. And under that seed of death, all they could produce was idolatry. Now here's our problem. The church has externalized everything that was meant to be about you and meant to be internalized and it's turned it into ritual and it's turned it into events of everything that happens outside of you. And here's the interesting thing that the Catholic Church did and this this is not a, a great secret. When they went into Ireland, they incorporated um, Celtic idols 
in their worship. Certain days to marry, certain saints. There's a saint in Ireland that never lived as a saint. She still has the same name. She was a goddess that was worshipped in Ireland, but she was so important to the Irish people that rather than alienate them, the Catholic Church incorporated her into it and called her a saint. What's she doing? She's hiding the idols. A lot of the stuff that goes on to Mary and whatever in Mexico is just, it's, it's this blending. What they did was they, they blended all this stuff and they gave it a Christian name. So, and all they're doing is carrying a dead seed, riding on a beast with a bunch of idolatry that's been hidden that cannot produce the image of God in people, which is why every time you walk into their churches, you see Jesus dead on the cross. They're telling you. What they're doing in plain sight. Because they can only produce death. I apologize to all my Catholic friends out there. I know there are some wonderful Catholics who are born again, spirit filled, do much more for Jesus Christ than I will ever do. But it's still a system that doesn't produce life in the people. And for the most part, the church is stuck there. There aren't a lot of people manifesting the glory of the only begotten within them. Can we just be honest? A lot of hoopla and emotionalism. And I mean, one of the things that shocked me, one of the things that really changed the way I thought, when I was in Arizona, and this is where I'll close. Um, oh, well, so let me just give you this. So the seed has to be activated in you by faith. That's what Paul's saying. It has to be activated in you by faith. See, you have to get revelation so that you get information that comes from above. That's the water that waters the seed. But it, it does you no good until what is revelation has become transforming in your thought process. See, if you still think about yourself as just a human being, only able to manifest what only a human being is able to manifest, that's all you'll ever get. But if you, if you think about yourself as separate from Christ, then you'll always experience separation from Him. You'll always feel like you don't have the spiritual power, and He does, and you've got to try to convince Him or get somebody else to convince Him to do something so that something can change in your life. Thus, you have a prayer chain. You'll be waiting on the second coming when all of creation is waiting on the manifestation of the sons and daughters of God. You'll feel disconnected. So, so what's got to happen is you've got to realize that divine seed, the monogenes, is in you. It's, it's in you. It's part of your being. It's not separate from you. That's why sometimes when people start hearing the voice of the Holy Spirit, they think, well, that's just me. Because there's a familiarity with the divine that you have because it's imprinted in who you are as a species. And if there are... Oh, Lord, do I have to say this? The Bible says all of creation will be liberated. If there are, if there are aliens coming from outer space, why are they coming here? And why are they doing experiments with humans trying to figure out their DNA? Because they realize we carry something and they're trying to unlock what we carry and they don't. It's just true. I'm sorry. I apologize. Think about it. And we don't know we carry it. You don't know that you're divinity walking in flesh. That you have unlimited potential. 
that you are a child. See, you're supposed, you are born from above. You, you have a citizenship. You have a passport that allows you to ascend and descend anytime you want to. To go into the heavenlies and see stuff and bring stuff back down. But if, you, if you're not conscious of it, if you're not aware of it, you cannot manifest it on a continual basis. You can manifest something so powerful that your body has to conform. Disease, pain, old age, all that stuff has to conform because it's the power of an endless life that you're carrying. And people told you, you gotta get, you gotta die to get it. So the Bible says we should be going from glory to glory, but we build on death. When we all get to heaven. I'm going on to glory. You should already be manifesting glory. Going on to the next level of glory, right? But you can't even begin to get there if you don't believe it about yourself. So you gotta get rid of all that stinking thing and see, all the law does is producing you a sin consciousness of shame and shortcoming, and how messed up you are, and how far apart you are from God, and how dead you are. So if you try to live under the law, then that's going to be everything that keeps reproducing. It's just going to keep having babies inside your own mind of condemnation and guilt because you couldn't manifest what you thought you were supposed to manifest. But when you realize it has nothing to do with that, It has to do with intrinsically who I am as a human being. You are not intrinsically evil. You do not have a sin principle dwelling in your body. You have a, you, you have, if, if sin means to miss the mark, it just means that you have a latent potential that has not been activated yet. That's all that sin is. All that sin is, is living a life less than the divine potential that is in, in, inside of you that has to be awakened by faith. You have to begin to talk to yourself and say, I am the seed of Abraham. I am the seed of God. I am the seed of Christ. Christ is in me. That is the hope of glory. The same power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead is dwelling inside of me and quickening my mortal body. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. I'm more than a conqueror through Him who loves me. I'm quoting Scripture to you. See, the Gospel is not that God gave His Son to die to satisfy the wrath of God. The Gospel is that when God gave His Son, He gave the gene to humanity so that it could be awake in those who believe so that they could be saved because they're walking in divine potential and not perish but have everlasting life because Melchizedek our high priest inserted everlasting life in us we just don't know how to activate it and our problem is we get deceived by every wind of something that comes along and we can't stay focused with something and build a life that's not built on occasional charismatic encounters with the Holy Spirit, but something that is built on a rock-solid consciousness and a connection with the divine where, where there is wisdom flowing from above. And you can say like Paul, I have the mind of Christ in every situation. And so I begin to walk in and it's no big deal to manifest something supernatural. And I don't get carried away into la-la land with, with, uh, with some of this falsehood. Now, here's what I'm going to tell you about what happened to me when I was in Phoenix. And it scared me. One of the things that I was determined to do on my sabbatical a um, year and a half ago, whatever it was, was to venture outside of Christian circles to actually experience for myself people from other faiths without judgment. That did not mean, in other words, I wasn't going to convert them. I was going to understand them. So there was an event in Tempe. There was an event in Tempe where this guy was coming. And I probably shouldn't, I'm not going to say his name because I don't want to cause problems. 
Um, and since it goes out over the internet. But his first name was Mohammed. So what does that tell you? Right? This was not a Christian event. So I show up at this event. There's probably, I don't know, only 50, 60 people there. And guess what this guy did? This guy was like a, a Islamic Benny Hinn. He showed up in a white outfit. He started talking about the Christ consciousness and the impartation that he was going to give you from the Spirit. And here's what happened. People started coming forward and he started laying hands on them. Now, he had kind of made himself to be a special carrier of something that the rest of us didn't. Right? But... People start coming forward and he would lay hands on them and he, this is what he did. See, the people at Toronto, yeah, I'm going to tell. The people at Toronto, you remember the Toronto Blessing? Here's what they told their, their top ministers when they went out around the world to minister the Toronto Blessing. Bring your entourage with you. Who's in the entourage? Those who get lit up by the Spirit first. Because here's what you do. You have a meeting and you talk about the things of the Spirit. Then you bring those that are with you and you lay hands on them and they will start manifesting joy. They'll start manifesting shaking. They'll start manifesting all that stuff and it teaches the crowd what they're supposed to do. That's called hypnosis on a mass level. So this guy calls up his little entourage and he lays hands on the first one and guess what she does? She starts shaking and she falls out and starts vibrating on the floor. Then he goes to the next one. Guess what? Same thing. Then the next one. Same thing. Then the next one. Same thing. Then pretty soon he's just going and laying hands on people and they're falling out and they're falling out. And guess what? They start laughing. They start carrying on. Some of them start speaking in tongues. And here's a man who's, to the best of my knowledge, never confessed any kind of faith in Jesus Christ. And I thought to myself a couple things. I thought, I mean, by the time it was all over, everybody's laid out. And I thought to myself, this is no big deal. I've done this hundreds of times. <laughs> but you had to pay 50 bucks for the man to lay hands on you. That's why he had to convince you he was carrying something you didn't. I thought, man, nobody ever paid me 50 bucks head to do this. <laughs> and frankly, I think I could do a better job <laughs> if, I'm, if I'm honest. But here was the scary thing to me. I thought, I could bring this man into my church. I could advertise that he was a healer and that he operated in signs and wonders. I just wouldn't just tell him, look, you're coming into a Christian setting. I can't tell him your name's Muhammad. And I don't want you to teach anything. I just want you to talk about stories and start laying hands on people. And how many of us would have thought we'd had a total Holy Ghost blowout? Beloved, that's scary. And a lot of that is because we really, can I just be honest with you? For most of us, we really have not manifested the power of the seed that's in us because we haven't come to faith enough for it that we're walking in enough intimacy with God that we don't need that anymore because we don't desire that anymore because we have His presence with us constantly. We have the ability to manifest constantly. So we don't need the hyped up meetings. In fact, they're kind of boring. 
truth of the matter is, oftentimes, we are living so disconnected from who we are in Christ that God does send waves of refreshing, but the waves of refreshing are there to remind you and to show you who you are. And could that have been a genuine move of the Spirit? The religious part of me wants to say no, but there's also a part of me that understands that the prophecy is that God will pour out His Spirit on all flesh, not just Christian flesh, and that every human being is carrying the seed of divine potential. It just has to be awakened inside them. You doing all right? That's why this Melchizedek thing is so foundational to the entire gospel. That's why Paul was so strong against the law because he's like, you don't understand, there's been a radical change in who you are. You're no longer a human being who's just marked by Adam's sin and death. You are now a human being who's carrying the seed. We are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. He goes on to say in Galatians 3. Remember Isaac, last thing, I'll take you back to the first message. Melchizedek's name means king of righteousness, king of peace, right? Romans 14, 17. The kingdom of God is not meat or drink, but righteousness, peace. And what does Isaac's name mean? Laughter, joy in the Holy Spirit. What he's saying is everybody who carries the seed of promise carries the kingdom and carries the potential to manifest in every situation righteousness, peace and joy you can give birth to Isaac you can give birth to laughter in every situation of your life when you know who you are and when you know who you are you're not subject you're not subjecting yourself to bondage anymore you're free does that help you? Can, can you see it? Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this word. Thank you for these people. Thank you for the fresh uh, water from heaven that we get to drink. Lord, I'm asking for you to open the heavens and pour out more revelation and understanding that we might come to faith in the full realization of who we are and manifest and walk into the divine potential that we've been given where we're no longer bound by time, space, and the laws and the bondages and the spiritual forces of this world, but we're walking in true freedom and true liberty, those who are born from above, sons and daughters of God, manifesting the reality of the kingdom and our inheritance in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. Have a great afternoon.